and welcome to another episode of Downtime with the Cranston Public Library. We're a podcast for cool people who love libraries where we talk about what we've been reading, what we've been watching, and what we've been loving. I'm your host, Taylor, and the branch librarian at the Oaklawn Branch Library, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, this is Jeremy Whitley. I am a uh, writer and comic book creator. Uh, I'm writing everything from my original series, Princeless, The Dog Night, School for Extraterrestrial Girls, to occasionally stuff for Marvel like The Unstoppable Wasp, and uh, lots and lots of issues of My Little Pony. <laughs> um, my name is Chris Schweitzer. I'm a cartoonist. I live in rural western Kentucky. I also write sometimes. I also draw sometimes. And... Uh, I make uh, wooden stuff uh, on top of that. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. As are mine. I forgot that part. <laughs> he, him. That's okay. Thank you both for joining us. A little bit later in the show, we will talk about your experience making comics and particularly making comics for younger people. But before we get into that, let's start off, as we always do, with what have you been reading? Um, so for me, I'm, I'm sort of ping-ponging between... Uh, three books. Um, uh, summer for me feels more spooky than does fall. And so I tend to indulge in my yearly take of uh, horror movies and horror shows and horror fiction at that point. And so uh, I am reading through one of the many wonderful Marvin Kay uh, edited anthologies that came out in the 90s. Um, Kay is a, a writer who is also an excellent uh, anthologist and has put together probably maybe 10 different uh, spooky story anthologies over the years. Most of them have covers by Edward Gorey, which is what drew me to him in the first place. Um, and so I'm, I'm currently working my way through one of those. Um, I'm really enjoying it. I'm also reading a, a book called, um, I think, Sondheim on Music, which is uh, the interviews that were done for um, Mark Horowitz. Um, uh, basically, their annotation, it's interviews that serve as annotations for Sondheim's uh, by hand compositions that were donated to the Library of Congress. And so it's a lot of thoughts about why he did different things, what different annotations mean. So it starts off very technical and sort of moves to more broad sense of using music to do storytelling, which I think has carry over to other mediums for storytelling, visuals and comics and stuff along those lines. Um, and then I'm, I just, on my, my drive back home from a, a travel yesterday, I put on my my third reread uh, via audiobook of Sebastian de Castell's Great Coat series. So I'm just jumping back into that, which it's a... Uh, sort of a swashbuckling adventure fantasy series uh, geared towards adults that I, I really like a lot. Very varied, very varied <laughs> stuff. All over the place. <laughs> yeah. Um, as for me, I would say uh, sort of, I'm sort of all over the place as well. Um, I've recently been uh, reading my my good friend and, and uh, podcast co-host Ben Kahn's uh book uh l campbell wins their weekend which is actually coming out in the fall um and it's a great book um i have been working my way through the uh a blade so black series very slowly um and uh on the comic side i've been trying to catch up on uh, i've been behind on saga and wonder woman historia so i've been catching up on on what i've missed there and then uh, i recently actually at ala was introduced to a series of sort of American-made manga uh, from the from a group called uh, Saturday AM, um, and I've been checking out some of their stuff. They have a big uh, series called Titan King, which is sort of a uh, Dragon Ball-inspired 
tournament manga and then uh, another book called Clock Strikers, which is uh, really interesting. Um, yeah, a little bit of everything. Yeah, I think I remember their their booth, or maybe they were at the Comics Tea. Um, they're manga, but it's kind of like a, a bit of a diversity focus, right? The publishing. Yeah. Uh, the, uh... The, the publisher Company, and CEO, yeah. uh, Frederick Jones, is, is black, and uh, they have a lot of, like, uh, a diverse team of, of artists from both in the U.S. and around the world, and sort of a focus on telling, you know, different types of stories about, you know, people who are sort of traditionally underrepresented in, in manga, especially. But you saying about being behind on Saga, I'm also behind on Saga, so that's actually maybe a good place for me to go next because I was going to say that I'm kind of like in between books and kind of like searching for my next fiction kind of pick to go with. It's been so long since I read Saga that I feel like I need to reread all of it in order to read the new That's, that's why I'm behind on Saga. I, I caught up, I binged everything and eventually caught up. And then it was a stretch between that and the next one. It's, it's I don't know that I can retain... With the, any anytime there's a complex narrative, if I take a break, yeah, I'm, time travel you, shows are out for me after the first season usually. When you read it in collections, it just uh, you can get all your heartbreak at once. You don't have to like get your heart broken on a monthly basis, you know. Yeah, I wasn't doing the issues; I was doing volumes. But that but that does mean that you kind of have to wait a little bit because it takes a while for them to get like enough monthlies to put into a volume. So I think they're on volume ten. <laughs> but I haven't read nine either. So I've got yeah, a little up, bit to Up do. to, I think, 50 was where they had the big break. Um, I read all of those in single issues. And then between that point and when they started coming back out, I, I moved further away from my comic shop. So I wasn't there quite as often. Hmm. And I came back in and I was like, oh, they're back. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's great. So I think maybe I finally will um do that reread i've been saying that i was gonna do so that i can catch up on some of the new volumes that are out because it is a ton of fun oh yeah definitely not recommended for children but no for, <laughs> for adults <laughs> i was just having a conversation the other day with um our audio engineer, Dave, that uh, sometimes especially in my library i'm kind of like a one-room library so kind of shove things where I can and the adult graphic novels are kind of the beginning of the adult collection, but pretty like prominently out there. And sometimes I'll see kid and I have saga actually think I need to buy. So that I'm up to date with saga, but I have saga in my collection. And sometimes I see kids like browsing over there and I'm just like, Ooh, parent, please pay attention to what your child's doing because I don't know if you're going to like what you're going to find there. <laughs> and it's your job to dictate that. Not fine. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, be right next to the Hellblazer ones that they also shouldn't be reading. <laughs> um, so besides uh, catching up on your comics and, and uh, reading about music annotation, have you guys been uh, watching anything interesting lately? Very little for me. I haven't found anything that's really grabbed me um, of late uh, with movies or with with uh, with shows. Where, uh, where sort of our family watch right now is where working our way through our our second Greg Garcia show, the this one being Raising Hope. My daughter really liked uh, My Name is Earl. She's 13. Now she's really enjoying Raising Hope. And so I, I think those are great. They're they're fun on rewatch. Um uh but that's that that's pretty much it. Mostly it's just been books and music for me lately. 
I'm, I'm sort of the opposite in that uh, when you were saying books, I was like, what have I been reading? <laughs> but like, I, I do a, I do a podcast with, uh, with my friends, Ben and Emily about, um, horror movies, just called progressively horrified. And every week we, t- we watch a horror movie and we talk about ways in which it is and isn't progressive, um, things that, you know, the horror movies are doing that, you know, people don't necessarily know about. Um, we just watched a movie this last week called Hellbender, which is from just last year. And it's a... Uh, is that the mom and daughter one? Yeah. Yeah, I liked that one. Yeah, it's a mom and mom and daughter's witches movie. Um, it was made by this made by this family during the pandemic. They're all like, there's two sisters and the mom are in it. And then the dad is directing and um, you wouldn't know it to look at it because it's an incredibly well-made movie um, and with like a soundtrack of songs that they also made. Um, I had like, no uh, idea. I just assumed it was a good smaller studio movie. Yeah, they, yeah, they filmed it that. during the pandemic. Like there's literally like there are several shots that I was when I was watching, I was like, I don't know how they did this. They obviously couldn't have had a crane out here in the wilderness. Um, and I guess like one of the daughters did like shooting with a drone for these scenes. Um, and I was like, this is like this is incredible because I, you know, we watched plenty of very expensive horror movies that are very bad <laughs> as we, you know, talk about stuff on the show. But that one is um, really incredible. We just finished up talking about a lot of like horror TV shows. So um, we were talking about the uh, Netflix kids show uh, Dead End Paranormal Park, which uh, sadly is is over, but had two great seasons. And that's also based on a graphic novel series. Um, I'm currently making my way through intermittently Ted Lasso and Yellow Jackets, two very differently oriented shows. <laughs> Um, they're, they're both soccer shows. They're practically the same show. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, they're both about sort of, they're both soccer shows that aren't about soccer. So, um, and uh, I am, aside from that, I've been uh, sort of working my way through a couple of, like I took this summer to start a couple of very big video games. Um, I finished recently uh, Red Dead Redemption 2, which is me. Maybe one of the most literary video games that exists. It's a very big Western story. Um, and it's incredible and takes an extraordinary amount of time uh, to the point that, like, I finished it and there were still enough other things to do that eventually I just had to delete it from my PlayStation um, <laughs> so I could do something else. And then I'm currently I'm playing Death Stranding, which is um, incredibly difficult to describe, but basically is a... a uh, game in which you're a post-apocalyptic mailman who has to deal with uh, uh, terrorists and ghosts and um, uh, rainfall that makes things prematurely age um, and a, a lot of other strange stuff. It's a Hideo Kojima game, so if people have played Metal Gear Solid, you know, there's some sort of bizarre plot elements in there, and this this game is almost our, all bizarre plot elements um, and is, is full of, like, actual actors they obviously like motion captured in this and it's uh it's an incredible and incredibly strange game yeah when you said death stranding i was like it's norman reedus takes a baby through the post-apocalypse i don't know if that's a spoiler for the game but i knew it and i never played the game yeah except the the baby is sort of a baby it's also a ghost detector um (laughs) 
and it like doesn't age because it's living between the world of the living and the dead and that's how it can see ghosts but also it's about him getting attached to the baby and Guillermo del Toro is also in it as like an actor and I was like what is happening this game it's so strange I mean aside from those I've been playing uh the the AEW wrestling game and also I guess watching AEW wrestling with with my daughter who is newly uh newly minted wrestling fan um but yeah this is very uh, dramatic you know like it's it's if you like drama it's it's there yeah and you know it's i feel like a lot of people are intimidated by wrestling because there's like so much history there's a lot of things to know Mm. that you know people can know but uh, i think ultimately most of that is trivia wrestling lets you know who you should be cheering for because the you know the bad guys will literally come out and insult you at the beginning of their (laughs) introduction so you know you know who the good guy is you know uh what the deal is it's very true um but it's somewhat uh trying to think of the was serendipitous i guess that you mentioned video games because i'm not a gamer myself but i bought a switch not even at the beginning of the pandemic like halfway through the pandemic so like i was late to animal crossing but i bought a switch because everyone was talking about animal crossing and this summer i wanted to try to play the switch more Um, and to find games that my partner and I would maybe want to play together. So mostly this is more him playing and me watching, but we're both huge Star Wars fans, and Knights of the Old Republic was ported to the Switch. So um, we started playing that. Um, I get to do all the dialogue options, and he fights all the bad guys and, uh, and takes us where we need to go because I'm directionally challenged. And so, like, I would be like, where was that person again? This city looks the same. Every building is the same, which is monochrome gray. And, yeah, so... My, my wife and my six-year-old are essentially doing the same thing with Skyrim together right now. So. <laughs> yeah, another kind of, like... That is a game that it's very easy to get lost in. Death yeah. Stranding as well. <laughs> I end up in the wrong place all the time and I have a compass and a map. Like, where am I? <laughs> well, that's the thing with like, yeah, games that have very monotonous scenery. So I would think the the kind of, you know, post-apocalyptic, a lot of walking around in kind of like destroyed areas of the world um, would tend to look monotonous. And so I think the, the think roughest of one it. of those for me was Sea of Thieves because it's, it's just know, the ocean. It's a sailing game. So there's big chunks of, of ocean that you're on, you know, you're it's doing pirate stuff, ocean. and then you're like, oh, I'm in the ocean. All I can see is ocean in every direction. I really need to use this compass correctly. <laughs> and also, just so I don't forget to mention it this past weekend, uh, we watched Guardian the Galaxies 3. Um, I feel very middling about it. I feel like it was a middle of the road Guardian. It was your, I mean, it was a Guardians movie. I almost was like surprised. Like I was like, I felt like we needed a trigger warning for like animal torture and a and oh, uh, like morally gray scientific experimentation. Because uh, I went into it like not knowing that it was going to be about Rocket, and then mm-hmm. it, it really kind of was about like Rocket's origin story. But um, yeah, I I cried at I cried about animals that had been experimented on, and my partner was like, "Are you crying right now?" And I was like, "Yes," and I'm mad about it. <laughs> So <laughs> I, I am like, 
I was amazed by how unflinchingly gross that movie is. Right? That's what I'm saying. I feel like we we needed a lot of trigger warnings that we didn't, or a lot of content warnings that we didn't get for, like, yeah, body horror, animal torture. Uh. Yeah, the, there's a whole, there's a whole, like, for anybody who hasn't seen it, there's a whole, like, space facility made out of, like, yeah. living matter that's all gooey and, yeah, it's, it's just, like, it's it's a very gross movie and there's a couple of like some of the violence in the fight scenes is really like oh ow oh that's horrible why did you do that but it also i think fell into the trap that marvel has fallen into somewhat recently with their movies of like we got to make a bigger better fight scene so like so much is going on that i'm like overstimulated and i can't I'm not processing what's happening because there's just so much happening on screen and I'm like overstimulated. And that's what I felt like was happening in that movie a lot of the time. I can see that. But it was fun. You get a kind of wrap up of the arc of the Guardians of the Galaxy. So if you had, if you, you know, felt a strong emotional connection to the Guardians of the Galaxies over the other two movies, it would say watch it so you can get that closure. But yeah. Warning, lots of torture stuff or like lots of experiment stuff that's not good. And we'll return to the show after a quick break. An online archive featuring keyword searchable local historical newspapers, including the Cranston Herald, is now available online to Cranston Public Library cardholders. The archive includes documents from 1885 to 1977. Additional newspaper archives from 1977 to 2016 are available separately from inside the library only. This archive is brought to you by Advantage Preservation and funded by the Champlin Foundation. Visit cranstonlibrary.org databases to find out more. Udemy is an online learning platform for adults who want to improve work-related skills or further develop a personal interest. Users can search through more than 4,000 continuously updated on-demand video courses across 75 categories, including business, technology, design, and more. All courses are taught by world-class instructors and offer a tailor-made learning experience for those who want to learn new technologies and skills to stay competitive in the changing workforce. All you need to get started is your library card and a Google or Microsoft account. You can find more information about how to sign up for Udemy at cranstonlibrary.org. So uh, I want to have time to talk about writing comics for young people. So I thought I'd start with a question for both of you is how did you get into comics? I know that's like a big, a big question, but kind of like just curious, kind of like where your where your journey led you to making comics and maybe specifically making comics for young people. Sorry. My my short answer (laughs) is um, just that I grew up in a a comic strip heavy household. My granddad really liked comic strips and had a lot of the early comic strip collections that were available, Pogo and Peanuts and things along those lines. Uh, My dad had them in the house growing up. We always had the the newspaper uh, as soon as they you know, in the, I guess the eighties, you started seeing more trade collections of, of comic strips, uh, with more regularity. And my dad would pick those up a lot. So I grew up with, you know, Calvin and Hobbes in the house and peanuts in the house and everything else. And so that really informed, uh, a lot of my pacing decisions, a lot of my aesthetic decisions, 
uh, things along those lines. So that was that was sort of my entry point. Now, you know, there are a lot of other stops along the way, but that was where I really came to. And uh, I never really felt like um, my particular the the types of stories that I wanted to tell, or the the way that I wanted to tell them, would necessarily fit with. Um, the types of comics that I saw on stands at the gas station. Um, but uh, around the time I was uh, just entering my mid-20s, um, the, the graphic novel section at Barnes & Noble and other places like that exploded. And so if I was ever uh, in a city and able to visit a, a larger bookstore that had a graphic novel section, all of a sudden I saw all these things that were a lot closer to the type of stuff that I could envision seeing doing myself. And so that really prompted me to want to do more of it. Any highlights that you remember that were like r- rising stars at the time that made you go like, wow, um, maybe I could do this. Some yeah. of the, some of the big ones, Scott Chandler's Northwest Passage uh, was the first historical fiction thing seen that I'd seen done in a cartoony style. And I thought, well, that's very exciting. I'm a big history buff. And that was, uh, that's even, even when I'm not doing straight history, it always informs uh, the types of projects that I do. Um, and, uh, a big thing for me was, um, I joined a message board, um, probably around right around the turn of 2004 to 2005. Um, and a number of other people my age were on there a couple years older. Um, and a lot of those, and they would post their comics on that website and get feedback on it and things like that. And a lot of sort of the early, uh, graphics and flight kids were on there. So like Mike Mayheck was on there. Raina Telgemeier was on there. Um, a bunch of other people. Um, and, uh, Raina posted a three page, uh, comic that she had done. That was just a little standalone thing that I think she did in school. Um, that was, uh, the first standalone comic that I'd ever seen that was, that length that wasn't an introduction to something else. It wasn't purposefully abstract and artsy. It was just a little anecdote story that was told in comic form. And that was really revelatory for me because I just had never seen that as a, as an output for the medium. And it got me really excited. And she, she posted that this was a, uh, something that she had put in one of her mini comics. And I thought mini comic, what's a mini comic. I bet it's a comic that you print, black and white both sides and you fold it over and staple it and then you have a comic which is exactly what it is um and so that that very day i went and drew my first what i'd call my first real comic like i'd had a comic strip in the college newspaper and other things like that but this was the first one where i was like oh i I have a sense as to what i want to do and i shared it on that board and i got some approbation from some of those folks and that gave me it was also the first thing that i'd ever done that i'd finished really like i'd i'd written songs and I'd done, but anytime I'd, I tried to, to do a story and I'd written some short stories for class. Um, but again, they were always trying to be something specific. They were trying to be literary. They were trying to be X, Y, Z. You know, if I'd done short comics, they were trying to be like the stuff that I'd seen at a fanographic sampler at the library. They were trying to be weird and artsy and they, and, and this was the first just earnest little story that I'd ever done. And I was really happy with it. And that gave me the confidence to go and do, a second story that was a little bit longer and then a third that was longer still. And before long, I was able to do book length stuff. Whereas before I would just start something roughly in the middle, do a few pages and piddle out. Uh, for me, it's, I mean, I, I think both similar and, and different in a lot of ways. I think um, I was, uh, I was 
I grew up in a comic book household. Uh, my dad, like me, is a big nerd. Um, you know, passed on his sort of love of fantasy and D and D and comic books. And uh, you know, in particular, there was a portion of my my childhood, I guess, when I was around uh, third or fourth grade, when uh, we were living in the Bay Area um, in Northern California, and um, we had a little uh, comic shop there called Fact Fiction Fantasy, and uh, Stan Lee came out to do a signing there at one point, and uh, I was I was like, yeah, I'm going to go meet Stanley, get some stuff signed. This is before I think Stanley was sort of the guy who was in everything. Um, <laughs> still sort of actually making comics still at this point. But, uh, you know, the, the deal was you had to buy some of what they were promoting to, to get signed, to get stuff signed. Um, so it, it happened to be what they were promoting is the new uh, 2099 line uh, of their, you know, comics at that time. Um, I really had no idea sort of like what getting a comic book signed was about as far as the, you know, reselling and everything. I was just excited to, to meet Stan Lee. And so uh, we bought a couple of books and I, uh, you know, showed him my own comic that I made in school. Uh, you know, like, again, I was like in third grade at this point um, and, you know, gave him one of the, the comics we bought to get signed and, um he was you know, very encouraging, gave me the very Stanley Excelsior, uh, keep going uh, kind of speech. And I, I, I it kind of stuck with me. Also, he signed the copy of Doom 2099, number one, that I brought uh, with me, which he did not write. Um, so I am <laughs> one of the only people, I think, in the world with a Stanley signed copy of Doom 2099, number one. Um, claim, strange claim to fame. Um, but, you know, from from there, my family moved out to North Carolina. I got sort of disconnected from comics. We didn't really have a shop in Western North Carolina where we lived, and uh, and I ended up, you know, going to school in in Chapel Hill, and then um, got sort of uh, I was working f you know getting out of school. I was working at a blockbuster um, nearby, and uh, just so happened that one of the guys that worked at the comic shop that was around the corner would come in to pick stuff up. And uh, we got to talking about Buffy at one point, and uh, he was like, oh, you know, they just started a, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, comic that picks up from the end of the TV show. And my wife was a huge fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, so that because of my wife, I ended up back in the comic shop. And um, because of, of that book, I ended up uh, getting, he ended up selling me both the Joss Whedon run on Astonishing X-Men and uh, I really liked the stuff Brian K. Vaughn did for the uh, the Buffy book. So I uh, he recommended Why the Last Man to me, um, which, like, that was the book that got me hooked back in. Because, like, I knew about superheroes. I'd grown up on the X-Men, you know, both the comics and the cartoons. And I knew all of that stuff already. But, like, reading Why the Last Man was my first, like, oh, you can tell these kinds of stories in comics. And, like... I'd gone to school for creative writing and my creative writing program had a very like non-genre ethos. They didn't want you to write any, anything that was comic books, superheroes, sci-fi fantasy. If it didn't have uh, a 20 something man crying in it, then they were not really interested. Um, and so like, I, I think that sort of connected me back in and I started making some, you know, creator own stuff with some friends of mine who were artists. And one of those, evolved into uh, Princeless, which was a, you know, 
book I, I made because it was something I, I wanted my daughters to see. Um, you know, it's just before my, my first daughter was uh, going to be born at that point. And it's like, I, I want a book about a, a princess that looks like her, that, you know, does her own thing, because I had seen sort of a lot of cousins and nieces and stuff get pulled into the princess thing. And I was like, well, you know, it's meet them where they are, but also like give them the stuff that we want them to have. Not, uh, not take that road that I feel like a lot of parents do of like, no, you don't want the princess stuff. You don't want the Barbie. You don't want this, that, or the other. You want to do empowering things. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The way you do it, the way you're empowered as a woman is you, cast aside anything that's traditionally feminine but it's like no that's not that's not what the feminist wanted no i I don't (laughs) think so at all and yeah i think you know it's uh that that book did pretty well and is is still theoretically ongoing though that's a whole other story (laughs) but you know I, i think that's how i got hooked into doing stuff for kids and then stuff for generally underrepresented like that has characters who are from underrepresented communities and that's always like a, a thing for me is I want to see comics that like people can see themselves reflected in and can like reach, reach people, tell the kinds of stories that, you know, you don't necessarily see getting told in uh, mainstream comics. And that's sort of what I, what I always aim for. So I think that leads us kind of well into um, you saying about how, more princeless is kind of a long story, but you do have some other comics that you wanted to talk to us about today that either just came out or are coming out soon. Yeah. Um, so my uh, new series, which is uh, from McMillan, uh, from the Impo- Imprint Firewall and Friends, um, that I'm doing with uh, my artist friend Bree Indigo, uh, is called The Dog Night. It's about a uh, non-binary middle schooler who is recruited by this sort of group of, of superpowered dogs to uh, help them maintain balance and order in the, the universe. Um, and they are uh, sort of given these, uh, they're go- going through these tests in this first book to see if they can become the dog knight and uh, get all of these all these special abilities and, and powers if they, if they have the values that are important to dogs. Um, so it's a uh, it's a lot of fun. It is, you know, a lot about like sort of finding and expressing yourself, but also it's about funny, magical dogs. One of whom is like a, to, to give you an idea, one of whom is called the Yorkshire Terror. And uh, <laughs> his, his thing is basically he's a Yorkie who thinks he's Batman, uh, you know, <laughs> who is a sort of the avatar of the dog avatar of justice. That's the thing that's most important to him. So. That's great. It's always the small ones you got to watch out for. It's true. Yeah, but uh, I mean, in addition to that, uh, during the pandemic, I had our, our first book of our uh, series that I do with my friend Jamie Noguchi, uh, the School for Extraterrestrial Girls, um, came out. We're actually working on the second one of that should be out in November, um, but that is uh, through Paper Cuts. Uh, so it's an, an all-ages um, adventure about a, a girl who... Uh, discovers that she is an alien when she spontaneously combusts in the middle of math class one day. Um, so she's sort of given the option by the government to either back to her home planet she's never been to. Um, she has you know, no idea where it is or what, what it's like, uh, or to go to this school, school for extraterrestrial girls, other you know, alien girls who are, are on Earth. 
where they can uh, teach them how to be, you know, good aliens on Earth. All right. And um, I said to you, Chris, before the show that I wanted to talk about um, some of your nonfiction comments. But before mm-hmm. that, I want to give you a chance to talk about anything upcoming that you um, would like to talk about. Well, my, my main thing that I'm working on this month is... Um, uh, so in addition to comics, I do I, I do a lot of stuff that's sort of comics adjacent in that I'm drawing and writing, but it might not be in sequence. And so something that I've, I've been doing for the past few years in preparation for this is that each uh, December, I go in and I do a little narrative write-up about one of the, you know, many uh, winter holiday figures from around the world. And so I usually do like a countdown. I pick 25 of them and do that for the, the lead-up from December 1st through Christmas. Um, and so I do that uh, to, uh, a lot of those have been written in conjunction with uh, my friend Benito Serino, who's a, a comics writer um, and an essayist and a, a classic scholar. Um, but he's a, he's the, 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 uh, the, the Christmas expert to whom I, I tend to defer pretty frequently. And he's, he's helped me with a lot of research stuff. And sometimes my interpretations of the characters differ from his. He's got a book that's not yet out yet um, called Yuletide Companion, which will come out eventually. It's going to be wonderful. Um, but, uh, but basically, I, I just go through and uh, a lot of them don't necessarily have – they have traditions associated with it, but not necessarily stories. And so I'll try and craft – stories that explain the traditions and i also sort of look at it through sort of you know y'all were talking about wrestling earlier through sort of like a kfab lens where um all of these figures are real and they all exist in the same universe and so how do i differentiate uh dead morose or um you know some of these other santa variants from santa like how are they different characters how does that how does that work um and so what I've done recently is uh, built this uh, pretty big, it's about three feet tall, wooden Santa's Workshop display set, which is, um, I make the P in display set big. So it's a display and it's a play set. Um, and, uh, and so it's like holiday decor that hangs on your wall, but also it's interactive. You can move the figures around and treat it like a, um, like a toy. Um, but I wanted to make something that, like I, I look at comics and, you know, any books, like a lot of my favorite authors um, you know, they, they, they may have been the absolute bestseller for their decade and two decades later, nobody's reading them. Uh, you know, their books are all out of print, et cetera. I came across a Raphael Sabatini novel when I was in uh, college and really loved it. And I looked him up and it was just like, oh yeah, all, you know, all his stuff was made into movies, like hugely popular. And the only, there was only one of his books in print at that time, uh, you know, since with, Kindle and everything, it's cheaper for people to at least keep ebooks in print. But um, but it was a real eye-opener for me that, you know, whatever I do, it's got a pretty finite legacy. And so I, I never look at books through the lens of, um, will people read this after I'm dead? Because uh, they won't. Um, you know, it's a, you know, two people will and that's it. But I like the idea of trying to produce something that'll last. So, so these are kind of my attempt to do that. Like I want to do something that you know, families will get and they'll bring it out every year and then their kids will bring it out every year and then their grandkids will bring it out every year. You know, we have stuff that was, you know, family family holiday traditions, I think, tend to last like that. And so I, I look at this through the lens of both. I really like doing it, but also that scratches that trying to do something that lastage for me that, you know, 
with that doesn't mean that no comics will, but it's you know one in a thousand, um, or one in ten thousand, and chances of me being one of those ten thousand are very slim. I'm not that good, so, um, so that's that's where I'm putting most of my energy right now is into the the assembly and production of those. So I make all the figures by hand, and it's uh, taken you know it just takes some time. So I'm I'm working those up, writing up the last couple of cards. Uh, that go in the set that tell you about the the figures. Um, but you were asking about the nonfiction books. But yeah, I, really... I saw that you got to be part of two pretty like substantial, popular uh, series of nonfiction graphic novels. You did the Fix a Car of Maker Comics, which they've mm-hmm. made quite a few of now, and you were the Roanoke Colony author for the Roanoke Colony of the History Comics. <laughs> So I guess I was just curious what your experience was to be part of those series that, um, I mean, the history comics, like I said, is really popular with kids. Uh, That's so very nice to hear. You know, I never (laughs) see the sales figures on those. So I just I just sort of have to assume that they're either being read or not. Um, So it's nice to nice to know that the, the kids are responding to them. But yeah, so I guess your experience being able to be part of those series and getting a chance to like write nonfiction in a graphic. Yeah. Well, I, I, I read a lot of um, Larry Gonick as a kid. Like uh, some of it tends to, you know, I mean, it's it's written for an adult audience in mind, um, but I really enjoyed it as a kid. I think I stumbled across Cartoon History of the Universe when I was like nine. I think they had it in our church bookstore. Um, and I just, I ate it up. I loved it. And uh, and I read more of those, you know, as I saw that there were additional volumes. So, so Gonick is really, the, and I'm not sure if, how I pronounce his last name. It's got, you know, a few vowels in there, you know, and I, I, uh, despite my last name, I don't speak German and I feel like it's a German name with probably some sort of, but I don't, I don't know how it goes anyway, but, uh, Gainick, Gonick, anyway, uh, he's fantastic. And I think he's sort of the, um, sort of the, er, nonfiction history comics guy. And I think all of us kind of, uh, if we're not directly influenced by him, we're influenced by somebody who is influenced by him. Um, and you know, there are a bunch of people who are, who are doing that sort of thing, but being, being part of the series, um, I, I got asked if I would be interested in doing a book. And I was like, yes, here's a list of, you know, 25 American history subjects that I would absolutely love to do. It probably wasn't 25. It was probably like 15, but it was a lot. I was like, I feel like all of these are underrepresented. I would love to do any one of them. And they're like, we, we already know what we want. Do you want to do Rowan up? And I was like, fine. Um, and so it wasn't an era that I knew particularly much about, but I really liked um, delving into it. Uh, and I, you know, trying to figure out what my, um, what my, sort of underlying thesis of it would be was was sort of the the tricky part. So I read, you know, a lot of uh, secondhand sources to start off to give me a context for it. Um, and then once I knew what I wanted to do, then I, I switched to primary sources. And I talk a little bit about that at the end of the book, like how different how you, you approach different research things. But what I what I really wanted to do with it um, was sort of to highlight that n- history historical events don't exist in a vacuum like they're all a product of the things that happen holistically elsewhere around the world and preceding it and so often especially when you're a kid it's presented to you as a vacuum um Mm. you know this this thing happened here and roanoke especially i think really misrepresents um using that approach really misrepresents it and makes it feel a lot more mysterious than it is where did these people go what happened to them why did it happen um if you just look at what happened there, it feels very mysterious. But if you're looking at the, you know, 15 other things that are informing that particular moment in history, then 
everything makes sense and everything feels inevitable uh, once you see the the different aspects playing out. And that's what I really wanted to focus on was to give those uh, extraneous elements a spotlight to to kind of show that once you learn more history, you know, it kind of compounds and it informs what you know about each subsequent event. Um, and so that was a lot of fun, like trying to put that together. And it also gave me the chance to, you know, draw some stuff in Central America, draw some stuff in Europe, draw some pirates, draw some, you know, English Spaniards, ship fights, uh, you know, get three different uh, native nations. Like it was it was a real treat because it gave me a variety of subject to work with. Awesome. So we wrap up the show with the segment I call The Last Chapter, where we talk about a library or bookish-related question. So I thought I would ask you both if you could rewrite a book from another character's point of view, what book and character would you choose? In my various writing endeavors, I've, I've tried to do it a couple of times and um, never never quite gotten to somewhere where I'm, I'm happy with it or feel like I'm, I'm saying something interesting enough. But the, the answer is, Hamlet and Ophelia, um, because Ophelia is such a, a, just like a plot point in Hamlet. She shows up, uh, is abused, and then dies off screen somewhere. Um, and then, you know, we're hearing about her own death sort of second, third hand, um, as, you know, Hamlet is learning about it. Like, there's so, so little attention or care is given to her as a character by by Shakespeare, but by the play, by everybody else in the play. Like, I, I love that play, but she is a very, like, underserved and, and interesting but um, unexplored part of that story. I love Hamlet, too. It's, like, my favorite Shakespeare play. And I think, like, the play that made me really become a fan of Shakespeare's work. Um, would you Would you say that you just would want to, like, dive in and and explore her character more or would you want to do like a rewrite where she like gets some vindication and like doesn't die at the end i mean the answer is yes <laughs> sure she's on she's on the road to the continent <laughs> yeah like i i definitely like off-screen deaths don't count jeremy they always can be reversed <laughs> yeah i mean you know her her corpse does show up, but who's not to say that that's somebody else's corpse that was swapped out, you know? Um, but yeah, Ophelia is always a, a character that I, I I would love to do both of those things and either, you know, see sort of more of her side of, of what's, you know, what she sees going on in Hamlet or like uh, do do some version of, of the story in which she, you know, she makes it out. What about you, Chris? Um, for me, it would be uh, Robin Hood. And I tried for years to figure out a way to, you know, off and on for years. It's not like I just sat in a room and w was working on this, um, where uh, it was a it was a Maid Marian as the main character. Um, but I and, but I wanted to stick to specific actions and the way that I was approaching it. I couldn't ever I couldn't ever put into play a plot in which she wasn't a reactive protagonist. Like I, I, uh, until the end, like I had, I had the end point where she does stuff, but I didn't want a thing where it was as a result, everything that happened was a result of the actions of others, which structurally it kind of needed to be for the specific type of story that I wanted to tell. Um, so I've since rethought about doing it, 
from a YA standpoint because uh, Will Scarlet is younger. He's Robin's nephew. He's like 16. He comes into the band. Um, and I think that there could be an interesting way of approaching that. But uh, at least in the, the Howard Pyle version, which is the one that I sort of hold up as closest to canon, uh, Will Scarlet is very clearly and, you know, in, in all but express text gay. And I think that factors into his story. And I'm not gay. And I feel like me doing a, a YA story with a gay protagonist potentially takes that opportunity from um, a gay or queer creator who might want to do that same thing and would be informed by a very different experience of that. So I don't know that that's something that I'll do, but if anybody ever wants to work on that and wants piles and piles of research about the, the siege of Nottingham, like I, I got you covered. Um, so I'm not really sure. I don't really know what would be the best thing, but I, you know, I love Robin Hood. I don't just want to retell a Robin Hood story, but I love that world. Uh, and I love those characters and I'd love to do something with them, but I don't just want to retread and I haven't found an avenue by which to do a non-retread that doesn't just upend the things about it that I already love. I love the through line of like vindicating female side characters, you know, like <laughs> bringing them to the forefront, the people who... In well, except a, for, a except for uh, obviously failing spectacularly at it um, <laughs> in my case. Jeremy, Jeremy's got a better track record and probably better luck <laughs> seeing that come to completion. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. All I'm our listeners trying. didn't see it, but he just kind of like very not nonchalantly like micro shrugged, like just like a very kind of just like. Meh. But yeah, no, I like I I like the idea of um, of yeah allowing these characters that previously were kind of just like here as the romantic interest and to forward the plot for our male protagonists. Um, but in terms of, I don't know, this is just my opinion as someone who's queer, but not a gay man. So that's not my lived experience either. But I think if you have the story idea and you, you know, talk to some people and had like some sensitivity reading and so, and collabed with some people from that community, like, mm -hmm. I think it probably would still be okay. Well, I think it's less about taking, you know, and I, and I think that there, I, and it depends entirely on how it's, how it's presented. I think like I try to extend representation. I also try not to ever do stories about that experience, like about, about how that is, because that's not, that's not my story to tell. Um, and so trying to find that balance between like, how do you represent these voices without over talking these voices? Like is, is, tricky because you want to see you yeah. want kids to see themselves reflected in the books that they're reading uh but you know i i you know am 15 plus years into my career and i have a lot of publishing opportunities that newer creators might not have and so there's also just you know the the number of times that i've pitched something and heard this is the third you know everybody's pitching this thing right now um you know i not to say that I'm like a hot commodity or anything, but I have, I, you know, when those pitches are there just by virtue of having books done and being a, a, you know, you know, it's going to end up on shelves if I finish it. Uh, the, the, you know, I've got a leg up on somebody who doesn't have a book out. And so there, there's also that. So it's like, it's, you know, it's always trying to find that, find that balance of what, yeah. what projects do you do and how do you do them? So I had a very similar experience. I have a book. It's actually coming out. Uh, probably, probably in 2025. She's, uh, um, but um, called uh, it's already been announced. It's called the Dashing School for Wayward Princes um, that we're doing for uh, Simon and Schuster. But 
um, I had been sort of like coming up with this idea of, of sort of these, you know, princes who, who don't fit the mold and are sort of going through this, uh, you know, school that's job is to teach princes basically how to be toxic, um, how to be toxic and horrible leaders, uh, as, as we so often encourage. And, uh, you know, as, as I was sort of filling this book out, I was like, well, I'm the, grinning. I really love this idea. <laughs> Oh, thank you. I was like, as I was filling out, I was like, yeah, this lead, you know, there it's a sort of a cohort, but the definite lead is is going to be trans. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I, I want to like run these first, you know, couple chapters by my friend Ben, who's non-binary. And it's like, just sort of give me some feedback. And uh, I got feedback from Ben and the feedback on the first couple chapters was so good that I was like, hey, do you just want to like, write this with me like do you want to work on this together and like that's that's sort of how that that book came to be like we're co-writing it and that was just like a a thing where you know i i try to always do that like the the princeless spinoff raven the pirate princess is all like all the characters are queer women and so i had sort of like a cabal of friends who are queer women that i was just like hey read this tell me what's wrong with it um You know, because it's it's sort of like we all pass around stuff to each other and everything, and uh, just throw I'd throw stuff out there to them when I was like, I don't know, am I is it good? Is it wrong? I don't know. Getting people who are like will give you feedback and also doing I think doing your best in a lot of cases to either bring people on board or or get them paid in some way is um, you know is I think is something publishers are becoming more open to, thankfully. Um, you know, I, I've had the same thing happen with a, a book I'm working on at Mad Cave that has disabled characters in it. And I was like, I want somebody who deals with the same disability to, like, tell us how we're screwing up. Because, like, it's going to be in, in in comics, and this is not something you see a lot in comics, and I want to get it right. Um, and Mad Cave was, uh, like, all props to them. They were very good about, like, yeah, we'll we'll have people on. We'll pay them. Um you know, just, just tell us what, let them tell us what to do. Um, that's been really awesome. So is there anything else that either of you want our listeners to know about you, your work, find out what you have upcoming and check your stuff out, maybe buy your stuff, all that jazz. Um, for me, uh, I have a website. It's my last name, Schweitzer, uh, followed by comics.com. So Schweitzer is S C H. W-E-I-Z-E-R, so SchweitzerComics.com. And then that's also my handle on uh, social media. So uh, Twitter, Blue Sky, uh, Tumblr, um, Instagram. Uh, You know, I'm sure there are others, uh, you know, (laughs) at this point I'm not on them. Um, Or at least I I may have, you know, parked my name, but I'm not active on them. So, Uh, yeah, for me, um, I do have a website. It's JeremyWhitley.com. I am on Twitter and Instagram as uh, jrome58. I am on Blue Sky as just Jeremy Whitley. I'm on Tumblr as jeremywhitley.tumblr.com. Um, and if uh, if you are interested in horror movies and talking about uh, horror movies with uh, you know progressive folks, not necessarily having you know dealing with sort of sort of the broy subculture of horror, but like. Um, actually you know dissecting things and then talking about it and um feeling like uh you know your your voices ideas on this stuff are valued like progressively horrified is our podcast it's on uh you can pick it up wherever you want 
Um, you know, it's a it's a, a man, a woman, and a non-binary person hosting this thing, talking about um, all this stuff. So lots of different perspectives, lots of guests talking about things. Um, so yeah, pick it up wherever you listen to the podcast at Progressively Horrified, or we're on Twitter at Prog Horror Pod, and you can come talk to us about scary stuff there anytime. All right, great. And we will we will shove as many of those links as the word limit of our podcast distributor will allow in the show notes. Uh, thank you both again for your time. Uh, and thank you everyone for listening. If you'd like to answer our last chapter question for today, you can email us at downtime at cranstonelibrary.org. You can also reach out to us via social media with hashtag downtimecpl. If you're feeling generous, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it helps people find the show. Thank you for listening. And this has been another episode of Downtime. Downtime is a project of the Cranston Public Library and is produced by Elena Rios, Robin Nizio, and me, Taylor Cardillo. Audio engineering by Dave Bartos. Our theme music is Day Trips by Ketza. And our ad music is Happy Ukulele by Scott Holmes. Links to the books and movies discussed can be found in the show notes. Remember to rate and review Downtime on Apple Podcasts. Connect with the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the hashtag DowntimeCPL. And if there's something you'd like to hear on the show, send an email to downtime at cranstonlibrary.org. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the speaker's own and do not represent those of the Cranston Public Library. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The Cranston Public Library name, in all forms and abbreviation, are the property of its owners and its use does not imply endorsement or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. The content of this episode is the property of the Cranston Public Library and may not be reproduced without express written permission. Join us next week for more Downtime. See, this is where the editing magic comes in. You all are going to think about it for a couple minutes and then it's going to seem like you knew it right off the top of your head. Uh, I mean, I do know it off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. <laughs>